Do you experience digital eye strain from too much blue light exposure from digital screens? Baxter blue glasses are not your average frames. These blue light lenses filter 80% of the highest energy blue light, eliminating 99% of glare. The past year, we have all been glued to our devices more than ever. Our exposure to digital light has soared, and our eyes and our sleep are suffering as a result. I can attest to the important role blue light glasses have played in my life. From keeping my eyes safe during work zooms to allowing me to slowly morph into my girlfriend's fashion twin, Baxter Blue is also a force for good and provides a pair of reading glasses for someone in need for every pair sold. Get 10% off your next purchase of blue light, sleep, or kids' glasses by clicking the link in our description for your exclusive discount. This is the sign you have been waiting for to invest in blue light glasses. We know you'll feel the difference. You're listening to All Alone with Something to Say, and this is your host, Emma Newberry. Today's episode features Pam Rosen, my roommate, and discusses the Ash conformity experiments, what conformity has meant in American history, and what the future of collective thinking holds in this country. So, enjoy. Welcome back, Pam. Thank you. Who originated the role of guest That's on me. this show. Um, and also is the person that I feel like I talk about the weirdest. <laughs> Today we're going to be talking about the Ash conformity experiments, which were a set of experiments that were conducted in the 1950s and sort of inspired psychology into the 60s and today. And we're basically going to talk about the history of that and Solomon Ash, the man who conducted these experiments and talk about why conformity has scared and comforted Americans at different times throughout history and sort of into today too. Everybody thinks they're not the sheep. Right. Solomon Ash was, do you want to tell this little Jewish nugget? Sure. I love Jewish nuggets. (laughs) Okay. So this is from the New York Times obituary from Solomon Ash. Dr. Ash told colleagues that the idea for his conformity experiments had grown out of his early childhood in Poland. As a boy of seven, he stayed up late for his first Passover night. He saw his grandmother pour an extra glass of wine and asked whom it was for. For the prophet Elijah, an uncle told him. Will he really take a sip? The boy asked. Oh yes, the uncle replied. You just have to watch when the time comes. Filled with a sense of suggestion and expectation, the boy thought he saw the level of wine in the cup drop just a bit. Yeah, so he was seven. And also was living in Warsaw, which is like, what else is going on in Warsaw besides... Bangers, that's what. Cup watching until several years later. Luckily, he left before World War II. He was an immigrant to the United States, and he graduated from the City College of New York in 1928. He had a master's degree from Columbia, which he got in 1930, and then he got his PhD in psychology from Columbia in 1932. Originally... He wanted to be an anthropologist because he was a follower of gestalt psychology, which is basically just the idea that it's not enough to interpret events. You have to be really careful not to interpret events outside of the larger context that they're operating in. And I think early anthropology and like thick description and all of those thinkers like Clifford Geertz felt like that's what they were doing. He decided to pursue psych anyway, and he was a professor at Brooklyn College in the late 1930s, early 1940s, which 
we all know was the beginning of a super fun time. Yeah. At the height, like in early Nazism, sort of the height of Hitler's power, I'm assuming after he invaded Poland. That was 39, right? Yes. September 1st, I think. Nazi propaganda is famous for being very, very effective, very stylized. So a lot of psychologists were studying propaganda and sort of why people were inclined to believe certain things. He concluded, this is also from the New York Times obituary, that propaganda is most effective when fear and ignorance mix, which it sounds pretty basic for today's standards, I think. Yeah, I guess that's more understood now than like previously, but I feel like when you're in it, it's hard to understand like that this is what's happening, even yeah. if you like feel like you're a smart person. Yeah, that's true. Like, okay, do you want to know something crazy that I read today? Hell yeah. Okay, so when you were growing up, were you told that MSG is like bad for you in Chinese food and stuff? I, it's vaguely familiar, yeah. Okay, so for some reason that was like part of me growing up, like my parents not wanting us to eat it all the time because it had MSG, which was like caused headaches and was not good for your health. So I learned today that actually MSG is present in a lot of American foods like mayonnaise and hot dogs and stuff like that. And it actually hasn't really been proven except for one study that was like pretty subjective that it has any adverse effects on the human body any more than really anything else because they just injected it to a baby mouse and it died and they were like, well. And so in the Merriam-Webster dictionary, it's known as Chinese restaurant syndrome. What? Because it's like, oh, it was like a way of people to, under the guise of health reasons, wanting to eat, quote unquote, cleaner food and not wanting to go to primarily Asian or Chinese restaurants uh. that because of, quote, quote, MSG, but actually it was just like a propaganda, health propaganda. There was something, thing. I don't know if this was the same thing, but when I studied abroad in France, there was something about how like Chinese restaurants like would make you sick and so like don't go mm -hmm. there and so a bunch of Chinese immigrants in France ended up opening Japanese restaurants mm -hmm. and because those were fine apparently people in Chinese restaurants can be pretty rude and ask for like non-MSG food which is like first of all the only reason that it's MSG is put in it is because it's Americanized Chinese food but also it's kind of BS and it's really just like yeah. a racial propaganda thing so when you're in it it's hard to know sometimes but Solomon Ash was luckily not really in it because he was in Brooklyn and he ultimately was sort of studying the basis of propaganda, but he was a pretty positive guy. And his major philosophy was that, quote, the human mind is an organ for the discovery of truths rather than of falsehoods. That's sort of part of like Gestalt psychology too. Like he said, most social acts have to be understood in their setting and lose meaning if isolated. No error in thinking about social facts is more serious than the failure to see their place and function. He did some sort of other studies and stuff on how perceptions are formed and how opinions are formed. But in 1951, this is like what he's known for. He was a professor at Swarthmore College and he had been teaching there for four years and he decided to try this conformity experiment. The main kind of point of the experiment was that he took groups of eight male students and each person at the same time was shown two cards. One had a line drawn on it and the other had three different kind of comparison lines. And so two of the three lines were very clearly exaggerated um, from the line on the first cards. And so the test was just for the people to identify which of the lines was the same as the first card. Mm -hmm. And so... The setup was instead of eight male students all just kind of coming in as volunteers, there were seven 
like in participants, but basically actors. Mm-hmm. And so the eight people would go down the line and say which of the lines that they thought you know, matched up with the line on the first card. And for the first two rounds, all the actors gave correct answers. And I think so did the mm-hmm. actual person. But in the third round, they gave a really obvious incorrect answer. So they would say like the two inch line was the same as the five inch one, even though it looked clearly like it wasn't. And it was set up so that the actual person would go last. Mm -hmm. So they would hear seven people saying that the two inch line was the same. Yeah. And because there were different rounds, ultimately, I think the most telling conclusion was that 75% of participants gave at least one incorrect answer out of the 12 tries, 12 rounds. So yeah, the 36.8% is like people who pretty consistently would go with what the majority was saying. And then, but it was mo- more likely that you would at some point cave to so that the 36% sort of is like 12 times out of 12 or whatever they yeah. would go along with the group. But 75% of people gave, went along with the group like at, at least, least once. once. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, So in his findings, Ash interviewed all of the guys at the end, and he concluded that they were either experiencing distortion of perception or they're experiencing distortion of judgment. People who yielded to the majority, which was the incorrect opinion about half of the time, some of them said that they actually were convinced that the actors were answering correctly and that the lines actually were the same. But most people said that they knew the answer was wrong, but they were uncertain of their own judgment and thought people must be right if so many people were saying the same thing. It's like one reason or another to come up with a justification why like what you see must be wrong. Right, exactly. One of the things I thought was interesting was before this study, Ash sort of made a name for himself by critiquing various established psychologists on like certain theories. And one of them was the prestige theory. If you give someone a quote and you're like, Walt Whitman said this, what do you think it means? Versus like, George W. Bush said it, what do you think it means? You can't really measure how someone judges something if they know who said it. You're changing the thing that they're judging. So you you can't really measure what their, how their perception changes because you're like changing the actual quantity okay. the whole time. But don't you think that part of it, being at Swarthmore with people feeling like, okay, I know that I go to a smart school and I want to think that I like go to school with smart people and I hold them in high regard because I want to be held in high regard. So if Swarthmore guys are saying that the two-inch line is the same size as the five-inch line, there's, you know what I mean? Yeah, I can see something to that as well. Versus like if you were pulled from the street with a bunch of other random people who you were told were also pulled from the street, there might be a different confidence in your own perception or judgment. Right. Like that's one of the things they talk about a lot with cults. Like in Heaven's Gate, as cult leaders escalate rhetoric to more extreme heights, People continue to go along with it, even if they express personal doubts later, because they have, you know, bonded with this group and trust these people and want to think highly of their friends and family who are going along with this. So a lot of it, how your individual identity connects with the group and like how you understand your world and the people who are in it. And that can affect even if your mind actually doesn't change, it's like your behavior, you'll still go along with it. I forget which commentator was talking about it in the documentary. It's like um, Heaven's Gate, the cult. The cult of, of cults. cults. Is that, yeah, okay. Do you remember that music number from High School Musical on the night of nights about no. prom? Okay, yeah, the third one yeah. I did not pay attention. The cult of cults. <laughs> and then anyway. the, some commentator was talking about how this group had spent 20 years, quote, vibing together before oh, yeah. the, <laughs> like, kind of 
mass suicide was introduced and so emma and i both just like silently started like raging together <laughs> yeah like without communication chemical castration vibes <laughs> like what oh my god but they were vibing i mean marshall applewhite was literally if you look at his eyes vibes are coming out of those retinas there's something going those on eyeballs there. are on you yeah. Because Scientology, they don't tell you like the actual beliefs of Scientology until you're very far in. And yeah, at that point, true. you like, like right? They like sneak <laughs> it in there. Which is so how you yeah. probably also like trust whoever's telling you and you trust the people that you're with. Like, right. I don't know how long that process takes, but it's not immediately like, so what do you think about this dude in the sky? Because people know that, like, yes, there are dumb people out there. <laughs> Hi, guys. <laughs> um, no, people are smart enough to know that if you really want to try and get someone to buy in, like you said, you can't trust that they're going to buy into the ideology. So you don't really pitch that. It's like you pitch the group, you pitch yeah, the, the sense of belonging. One of the biggest conclusions was like people are much more susceptible to conformity than they would like to think. Like a lot of us would like to think I can tell that that line is shorter. That's stupid. Right. Like, I don't know. But you really the thing is, you really don't know until you're in that position. And that's what's scary. Yeah, that we're all susceptible. Yeah. For one of my classes, we read chapters of Ezra Klein's book, Why We're Polarized. Um, and he cited this on the Nash studies in reference to like the formation more in modern times, but kind of all Chechia, American history, just of political parties. Mm. And how if you're fully invested in a party, you're likely to go along with what the party says, even if it might be against or like at odds with something you believe. Uh, the example he uses was the individual mandate of the Affordable Care Act, which originated in the lexicon, I guess, or discourse from like Republican sources several decades before. And then kind of in the ACA, so Obamacare, the Republicans were like adamantly against it, even though it had originated as a Republican mm. idea. Mm -hmm. And so the idea that like for several decades, like I forget if it was pre or post Nixon, but just the shifting of parties in terms of beliefs can make it so that the entire institution is against an idea that they had, you know, 30, 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. And that goes for Democrats as well, obviously. Yeah. And that's the thing, because it's like this particular one is a Republican conservative example, but like just as easily with the Democrats yeah. or just as easily with, you know, leftist progressive you know, organizations, things like that. And I think that's sort of what Ash was getting at. You can't just take a piece of policy, for example. It has to be within the context of, like you said, the shifting political parties and the trajectory of that policy. It's more like, what does it mean to have that opinion, not what is your opinion? Yeah, exactly. What are you indicating with your opinion and who are you aligning yourself with? And I think with the two-party system, it's easier to create an outgroup as well because it's, it's mm -hmm. what does it say about you to believe in something, but also what does it say about you to agree with someone on the other side because right. there's only one other side. It's not like another student in my class was talking about it and how the, it's like a multi-party system. So it's not a huge deal to like, you know, if you're not a politician to jump affiliations from one party to the other kind of within the same yeah. like left and right, you know, schema. But with just Democrats and Republicans, it's like they've established themselves now as seemingly polar opposites and, you know, virtually everything. And so if you're a Democrat and you agree with something a Republican says, it's blasphemous and vice versa, even if it's something that you like mm -hmm. privately agree with or that others around you would have agreed with, you know, several years ago. Right. This is why like every time Lisa Murkowski or Susan Collins or Mitt Romney, okay, steps up to the podium, everyone's like, <gasps> yeah, because they sort of have this weird, it's not really a flexibility, it's like they have a loophole that they can take depending on how their constituents are feeling about. My favorite was um, John McCain's thumbs down 
on yep. the skinny repeal? Healthcare reform okay. law. And in this case, Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins mm-hmm. joined the Democrats. Yeah, so that was it had ended up tied with Murkowski and Collins, and then it came down to McCain. The article says the iconic thumbs down vote that summed up John McCain's career. Did that sum up his career? I think by you Remember saying his that. presidential bid? POW, like, yeah. Yeah, thumb screws. Thumbs down for thumb screws. <laughs> Sweatshirts available at the All One Pod. <laughs> oh my God, I'm horrible. Oh, As a Democrat, I tend to read more about Democratic discourse, or I guess like look more favorably upon that. So sometimes it feels more, it feels very radical to conform to the party line because in comparison to some Republican policies, like let's say on abortion, for example, like it feels radical. It shouldn't be, but like that women should have control over their own bodies and like the decisions that they make about them. But that's actually, that is like a type of conformity still. And you do get a lot of comfort and security from feeling like, okay, I believe this. And like, that means this about me and like, yeah, whatever. That's like, if you, if you are pro-choice, then there's solid assumptions about your beliefs on other things, the kind of people who you hang out with, like right. where you live, et cetera. And so those are all like layers of community in and of themselves. Oh, shoot, I think it was the Ezra Klein book as well from a different chapter. It might've been another reading. So sorry to the person who's not Ezra Klein if this was your <laughs> idea. But it was some kind of study measuring like political leanings of counties based on locations of Whole Foods and of Cracker Barrels. Oh my gosh. And so like it just saying that is like, Okay, I know who shops at Whole Foods. I know who shops at Cracker Barrel. I can guess their political leanings. I can guess what they may yeah. look like. I can guess what their age might be. And like, obviously there's, you know, variation within all that, but like, hmm. it's a singular store shouldn't tell me all of that, but it does. Yeah. Or at least it gives me assumptions. That's like, did you see the New York Times had, like around the time of the election, they had that game where it was like they took pictures of the inside of different people's fridges and you had to guess if it was a Biden voter or a Trump voter's fridge. Oh, no, fridge. I didn't see that. Oh, that's uncomfortable. Yeah, because it'd be like a singular pack of hot dogs and they'd be like, gotcha, Biden voter. No, no. And then like tofurkey and they'd be like, psych. Yeah, I've never been to a Cracker Barrel, full disclosure there. Me neither. I'm going to look it up. Yeah, I feel like we should have that in here. Old country, Old country store. store. So, oh, they have a lot of stuff. Okay, Cracker Barrel. Okay, wind chimes from Cracker Barrel. Food and candy, grocery. Non-hard candy, so soft candy. Ooh. Right? I mean... We're, we'll see. Okay, Cracker Barrel sells hot tamales peeps. I think for $1, I think we... Add to cart. Add to cart. <laughs> I think we add to barrel. Yeah, so for all your fruit gems and other oddity needs, you can head to CrackerBarrel.com to the non-hard candy section. I'm having a great time. I am having an okay time. Anyway, Um, Solomon Ash. I think conformity as a word, like I said at the beginning, has been like either used to quell anxiety or establish anxiety in this country and like a lot of different discourse. Like immediately I think about like post-World War II into like Red Scare times. Yeah, there was a lot of anxiety around conformity in post-World War II America because of that idea of like the faceless Nazi soldier who was just following orders. The people who designed the atomic bomb and dropped it on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, like just the notion that like we would condone an act like that and sort of rally around like a national narrative about why we did that. So like in the 1950s, which was interestingly when Ash was doing this study, 
there is a culture of conformity, like literally cookie cutter, like Stepford wife, picket fence, just saying terms that hopefully. <laughs> well, cause evoke. that, yeah, like that, I think for a lot of people that idea was like the calm invoking, like you were talking right. about the idea of like a stable family in a like quiet town where there are no atomic bombs and or Nazis running and, like, around. like liberal Valium dispensary. What? I don't know. I'm just thinking of stuff they gave to like depressed housewives. Valium sounds right. Yeah, the Valium vibe of conformity. There's like that side of the coin. And then there's like, if you were handed a swastika, like, would you? You know what I mean? Yeah. Which obviously it's not really that stark. There is something to be said about the viral nature of emotions. There's an amazing podcast episode of Invisibilia called High Voltage Emotions Part 2. And everyone should listen to it. But they interviewed this anthropologist, Renato Rosaldo, who studied slash lived with the Ilongot people in the jungle in the Philippines. And this was like early days of anthropology when you could just like sit and observe people and be like, aha, and then get published. In Ilongot, there's this word called legate, which describes an emotion that Rosaldo really had trouble sort of capturing and he would see it. He would see them describe people with a lot of energy as having like it or like one of the major examples he gave was he was playing back some tapes for the people because they wanted to hear how they sounded and they heard the voice of someone who had recently died and they all became so distraught and angry and it like spread throughout the entire village like even people who hadn't been there and heard it it just like this idea of like collective grieving slash really um, active grief, like wanting to break things or like they're, they used to be known for their head hunting in that particular tribe. So like that was sort of a collective emotional processing activity in addition to being an important social marker for rites of passage, stuff like that. But the idea of like it, I think has always really fascinated me because it's just that it's not something you can experience alone. Like it has to be a group phenomenon of just like, he ultimately lands on the phrase high voltage going through your body. Like that's how it feels. Is part of it like the need to take some kind of action, even if that is just kind of outwardly expressing? Yeah, like one example he gave was he saw a younger guy running down the path and he was able to chop down like a ton of trees that day as opposed to his normal amount. Sort of like this kind of like energy. It's not really positive or negative. It's just like very intense. And yeah, it's very like embodied. Feel, so feel, like the voltage makes sense. And if it's fueled by like adrenaline and like. Yeah, exactly. Out of body experience, maybe. But I think like, yeah, the most important part is that you don't have to have experienced the instigating event to have it. It can be like. Like you know, get. Yeah. spread for lack of a better word. Yeah, like viral, literally. Ha ha. Ha At this point, this is kind of a played out connection to be like viral online. <laughs> but I think. You know, with the speed of things like Twitter and reactions and stuff like that, it's really easy to feel this. And I know we've talked about this before, like having this anxiety to like profess that you're a good person, mm -hmm. also known as virtue signaling. But just this idea of being like, everyone I like and follow and whatever is saying this, so I have to say it too. Right. Because I don't want to be the only one that's not saying it. I guess the dimension mark and return of awareness, mm -hmm. if it's something that everybody's definitely aware of with like the internet i can feel very like visceral anger or yeah sadness over things that i have not personally witnessed mm -hmm. covid i mean there was a lot of misinformation there in general but the idea of 
people being very, very scared. Like I caught that fear rather than more so than I learned more about COVID or whatever from the article right. that I shared. Right. I hate how much I love vaccines being referred to as a Fauci ouchie. That sounds like something a bully would do, like a titty twister. <laughs> I'm going to give you a Fauci ouchie. I was something I was trying to figure out too with like talking with you and then with reading some of the Klein uh, book was like the difference between conformity as Ash kind of puts it forward with like groupthink. And like, mm-hmm. are they the same? Mm-hmm. And I feel like they're not, but I don't know if that's just kind of have different vibes or like if there's genuine kind of differences between the two. Because hmm. like conformity to me can be like a larger phenomenon, whereas groupthink, I picture like a dozen people in a room who come to the same conclusion. Right. Yeah, for some reason, I, I think of conformity as a more of a passive thing or, you know, not necessarily in service of the ultimate conclusion, but more in service of sort of fortifying like self-perception. Yeah, it's more like that. It's yeah, that's a good point. I think it's more community oriented. Groupthink is like you literally could put 12 randos in a room and like identity plays a role, but it doesn't matter the way it does mm. in conformity. Look, you know what? Okay. Explain this to me when... <laughs> Someone's in a, a court. Pick with you. I have a bone to pick with the criminal justice system. I have a skeleton to pick with them, but <laughs> one of the bones, like a teeny pinky bone, is like if a prosecutor is cross-examining someone and they ask a question that's like, but didn't you know he was going to kill her or something? You know, like something that will prompt an objection. Yeah. And then the judge will be like, okay, strike that from the record. Jury, like, unhear that. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. What? I don't know how you're supposed to be like, okay, nope. That's not in my brain. But like the idea of a jury going into a room and having to have a unanimous verdict, like how much of that is groupthink versus well, Have you seen conformity? 12 Angry Men? I have not. Okay, it's it's that. I don't know if you were like this, but my general positioning as like a child in various social groups was like the silent sidekick of like the girl with the big personality. Uh, I identify like, with silent. <laughs> Like, I would do, like, the occasional, like, side quip, but, like, not actually really be part of it, but just, like, be orbiting the son of, like, this other yes. girl. I think I spent a lot of my childhood being, like, mentally and emotionally dominated by, like, my peers because I was just, like, scared. I was just, like, a so, scared kid. Yeah, I don't know. I think what you're describing is what I didn't recognize at the time, but, like, looking back, saw in a lot of... I'm like flashing back to my seventh grade, like click. And so the lunch had, table, we were talking about this. We were, right? yeah, yeah. yeah. So you had the sun person and then like several other people and me. And I don't know if I was Pluto or like Neptune, but whatever. And so like the Mercury through Uranus people, I saw like looking back now, I recognize that behavior mm-hmm. of just like conforming to the sun yep. idea. And so like for the Mercury person, it was maybe more in line with what they felt or would have said anyway Mm -hmm. to varying degrees this is i like this analogy yeah this is very helpful i just remember there was one halloween where our clique was dressing up as the incredibles and our son the leader wanted us all to wear red fishnets like stockings Mm -hmm. with our outfits and like we were 12 13 so everyone was like (gasps) yeah and i just remember my parents being like absolutely not and i thought the next thing out of their mouth would be like because, you know, we don't want you to be hypersexualized as a child. But instead, it was the most Jewish, like, you'll be cold. That's, oh, yeah. You'll be cold. How many Halloween costumes have been ruined because Jewish parents have been like, you'll be cold? Put turtlenecks over your princess dress? Yes. But I just remember, so I didn't wear the fishnets. 
or I guess I wore them with like tights underneath them, which like, good luck, Emma. But I just not even intentionally, but I think just in that moment, I like that was seen as such a transgression. Mm -hmm. Um, But then eventually I was talking about this with my seventh grade best friend who I am still close with, which is great. Uh, She's awesome. But she was also in this group. And eventually I did stand up to our leader and like had no friends. But (laughs) now looking back on it, I give myself props because she was scary. You broke out of orbit. I did. Massive asteroid hit and you're like, well, we're we're doing this. Yeah. Yeah. I think conformity operates on a lot of different levels, both like in consciousness and also just like in our society too. I just, I was thinking about like the Capitol riots, like the idea of documenting yourself, which is like getting everyone screwed now Mm -hmm. because they're like, you took a selfie like in the Capitol. So we know you were there. You tagged your friends. Yeah. Right. Um, But just the idea that like, there's safety in numbers type of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, because if you're the only one who's going to riot in the Capitol, you'll be immediately arrested. Right. And, like, nothing will happen. But also, like, you may be able to think, like, maybe it's not the wisest if I document this on social media, even if it's, this is what I want to do. That's something, but, too, where if everyone around you is doing it, then, exactly. like, A, you do it because you want to fit in, but then B, you're like, oh, it must be safe. Right. If, like, everyone else is doing it. But also, there's all these, like, you know, like, the people who are on QAnon or like incels, it's all still about wanting to be in the in-group. It's just like, are you in with the outsiders and you identify as outsiders to like- I think every human is part of an in-group, even if it's not like the majority in the country or whatever it might be. But did you ever read Slava Zizek? No. He looks exactly how I thought he'd look. But- He kind of looks like Ben. Oh God. (laughs) Yeah. We love Ben. Only love for Ben on this podcast. Okay. And I remember my friend, after the fact, was like, in trying to paraphrase him and make fun of him, was saying something to the effect of, you know, all of you are surrounded by trash fires, and that's what you worship. But then, like, come with me. But then you just have your own trash fire. (laughs) So, like, yeah, any idea or philosophy or, like, moral code or whatever in this metaphor was a trash fire so mm. like even if you're not following the main one if you follow one you have your own trash fire right and so this like zizek it was like all ideas are stupid something or other i'm definitely not paraphrasing correctly but like well i don't know we all have yeah. lots of feelings about it i don't know i don't want it to come off as like cynical because i think you can genuinely believe in something and not just be doing it for your own like comfort and self like identification I don't know. I think people are propelled by more than just that. Well, I think, like, if it's an intrinsic moral whatever it is that is how you, like, identify with your politics, with your where you shop even, like, if you're trying to be more sustainable, like, those are things that you truly believe in, but then you gravitate towards the people who also truly believe in that because it's a core value and because another part of the Klein reading talked about um, how interests, like, interest groups... Those are interests, but, like, by the internet and, like, BuzzFeed was the example he gave. It was, like, you know, 10 things, like, people who love cult documentaries know or whatever it was. It t- takes yeah. that interest and makes it an identity. The idea that things that you are vaguely interested in when you develop a group of friends around mm-hmm. it or any kind of community around it, it can become, like, more of a deeply held belief. We're all sort of prone to it, I think, yeah. to different extents. I wonder if there's got to be something with, like, the age you were as the internet developed. Mm-hmm. And, like, how that, would that be affects your, how you engage on the internet in terms of viral content. The biggest thing about small snippets, like tweets or 
you know, limited time videos like TikToks, you can't really fit all the nuanced information right. in it. You literally can't yeah. because the audience doesn't give you enough time to, they don't want to absorb it all. So I think that definitely affects that. Yeah. The depth at which people engage with certain issues. No, definitely. A lot of people emphasize how social human beings are like as yeah. creatures. And I think just like everything. Like being with like-minded people isn't conformity in and of yeah. itself. It, I think can be step one of a million or 10 or whatever that can lead to like conformity in a debilitating sense. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of All Alone with Something to Say. Special thanks as always to Kenny Noel for music and Dan Valu for the ads. Have you got something to say? If you do, you can find us on Instagram or Twitter at the All Alone Pod or email us at the All Alone Pod at gmail.com. Thank you.